St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents In Heaven and on Earth, recordings of the classes, talks, and retreats given by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of your mind, of our mind, to the understanding of your gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of your blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as world pleasing unto you. For you are the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ your God, and unto you do we ascribe glory together with your Father, who is from everlasting, and all holy good and life-creating spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. So this is our seventh class, so we're more than halfway done with what I've said that we're going to do for the classes for the Divine Liturgy. Uh, the last class we discussed the book of Revelation, uh, and use it as a way to discuss by connecting it back, because it's obviously in Scripture connected back, to the theophany of God to Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, to talk about then the reality of the throne room of God and those who are gathered around it, and that we're joining them at the throne. Uh, so we have the Queen Mother, the Theotokos, and we also have the saints, the friends of God. Uh, specifically, we talked about the martyrs, who we see pretty uh, explicit there in the book of Revelation. And I'd said at the end of that class that we were going to discuss a little bit more uh, the Theotokos, but for the sake of time and the amount of classes that I want to get, like, actually stick to 12 and be done, uh, I'm going to say, you know, we're just going to put that to the side and we can cover that at another time. And there's now, when I first became Orthodox, there, I think there was one series of lectures that I listened to on the Theotokos that actually was pretty in depth. Uh, and that was by Father Thomas Hopko. You probably may be noticing a theme that Father Hopko probably comes up in almost every lecture. Uh, there's a reason for that. Um, but now with YouTube, and I know even some of you <laughs> uh, expose yourself to a lot of stuff about orthodoxy through YouTube, there's just a ton of material. I would say probably, no, not probably, of varying quality, but there's still material out there in a way when I first became orthodox the whole like blogs were basically a thing but not like huge yet and there just was you either you had a book or you you know you can't go to Barnes and Noble and pick up a book about the the Virgin Mary in the orthodox tradition <coughs> has anyone seen a book at Barnes and Noble no maybe Mary through the centuries by Yaroslav Pelican but that won't really give you like the orthodox view of Mary. Um, now you can find through Amazon and all these things, all sorts of information. So if you really want to read up on that, I can give you um, materials and things to read because I'd like us to go ahead and move and discuss uh, two other sections of the liturgy, that being the Chisagyan and then the kind of sequence uh, that is uh, the reading of scripture and the, the kind of... Um, dialogues and things around or prayers around the reading of scripture and then to talk a little bit about the the place of scripture in the life of the orthodox church so after we have the um series of treparia for the saint of the day the resurrection if it's on a sunday we have the saints of the day uh typically often we'll end with steadfast protectress of christians and then the priest uh, will, the prayer, the exclamation, uh, which I don't have up here, but that's fine for right now, uh, 
says, For holy art thou, our God, and unto thee do we send up glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. And this choir sings amen. That's actually a funny thing is when you're first learning to do those exclamations of the priest, you're your intuition is to say amen because you're so used to being the one saying amen and then you're not saying amen anymore. So there's a lot of newly ordained priests who are going, still saying amen, and then the people, <laughs> we took our part. <laughs> uh, the, then we have the singing of the Trisagyan. Does anyone know anything about the Trisagyan? Was it the second or fourth ecumenical council where... It was fourth, yeah. Like there was, I I remember very little details, but uh-huh. it was like, ba- basically the idea is it was given by angels to humans. So right, the story I think that's around Saint Pacomios. Uh, there's also a prayer rule associated with the angel gave to Saint Pacomios. Do we know who Saint Pacomios is? He's an ascetic. He was a desert father ascetic. Uh, if you think of like. Who are the great ascetics of like fourth, fifth century, that that kind of um, period? You're going to think of who's kind of everyone kind of considers the the grandfather of all the desert fathers. Saint Anthony, Saint Anthony the Great. Uh, whether or not he was the first, that's kind of the way that we talk about him. That's debatable because it seems like even in his life that there's others out there. Uh, and if you look at the Old Testament, there are, I mean, Elijah, uh, you have the Nazarite vow, you have all these kind of ascetical, the Qumran community, which isn't in canonical scripture, but is a Jewish movement that's basically an ascetical movement that definitely helps in the study of scripture, the, the um, things that, uh, the writings they produced, and also the writings that they kept, because we're able to uh, ascertain, or at least solidify certain Old Testament scriptures because of the uh, because of the Qumran community um, but you I just totally lost my train of thought <laughs> I'm getting into my mid-30s and I'm losing my trains of thought what was I talking about before I started talking about the Qumran community Pacomius Pacomius thank you that's why <laughs> Saint Pacomius was if I remember the story of Saint Pacomius he was uh, a Roman soldier, and then he was thrown into jail, and Christians came around and were feeding those who were in the jail, and he saw what they were doing, and he said, these are good people, I want to be like them, and then he basically started, uh, they started teaching him, and he became a Christian, and then he came out, and because he'd been a Roman soldier, he actually is kind of uh, considered to be the um, grandfather of uh, monasteries as you would typically think of today, which is kind of a group of guys who are bound together to live in an ascetical life, a monastic life. Bacomios and his rules are the kind of beginning of this Kinobitic uh, monasticism. Because St. Anthony is kind of like the other Desert Fathers. He has people around him, but it seems like he's kind of on his own. Um, but St. Bacomios, uh, this tradition is that he received a prayer roll from the angel. This is another opportunity to plug uh, the new prayer book that just uh, St. Tikhon's Press just released that we have a few copies. Uh, you can't buy it from St. Tikhon's anymore because they need to reprint them because they already sold out. So um, if you do want a copy, it actually gives uh, 
the form of St. Pacomius's prayer rule in there and a few other uh, fathers, the way that they uh, structured their prayers and see the differences between them. Um, basically, the Chisagian, at least at first liturgical use, is attested by the Fourth Ecumenical Council. Uh, that's 451. Uh, but it's been, it was widely known prior to that, so the first liturgical use is attested to that time period. Um, it is one of those, if you're going to associate a, a prayer with the Orthodox Church, this is probably one of the prayers, uh, because if you're doing your kind of daily prayers, morning and evening prayers, uh, you even heard it tonight at Vespers at least twice, um, this is part of the sequence of prayers. We even call them the Trisagian prayers, uh, where you start off with glory to thee, our God, glory to thee, O heavenly king, the O heavenly king. That's another prayer that's very um, kind of standard Orthodox prayer. And then the Trisagian uh, here is um, it's just one of those key prayers of the Orthodox Church. What There are at times in the liturgy where we alternate and we don't do the Trisagian. Does anyone know when those occasions are. We don't sing the Chisaga on certain feast days, but we sing at least two other hymns. While you have been baptized, the Exactly. The baptismal hymn, uh, we quote from Galatians, as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, alleluia, uh, Christmas, Theophany, Lazarus Saturday, Holy Saturday, Easter and Pentecost, we sing that instead of Chisagion. Why do we sing that hymn instead of the Chisagion on those days? When catechumens were baptized, usually. Historically, that's when people were received by baptism into the church. So you have these liturgical remnants that we continue to this day, even if we, and it's still typical to this day that we receive people on Lazarus Saturday uh, or around those uh, particular feast days. Um, because the church has historically done it at those times. And you can tell because the Chisagian, uh, we don't sing it. Uh, then there's one other hymn that we, we replace the Chisagian with. This is a little bit harder. The Acrosal Master? Yes. The Exaltation and Veneration of the Cross, we sing, uh, we bow down. Well, we just had the Exaltation of the Cross. So that is when the Chisagian... Um, is traded out. What do you all think about this prayer? I like it what? A you like it a lot? It's pretty okay. <laughs> what what kind of stands out to you about this prayer? Besides the repetition, yes, okay. Triplets. Triplets? <laughs> Why triplets? Trinity. Yes. Maybe you've noticed in Orthodox worship, but we like to do things in threes. We usually typically do bows in threes. We usually sense things three times. We there's a, threes are just everywhere. What uh, what does this sound like? We actually read it in the Book of Revelation. This ties us back to Sinai. Uh, even though in Sinai they don't, the angels Isaiah. don't sing this, but Isaiah they sing this, the Book of Revelation they sing this. Yeah, holy, holy, holy. The Sanctus, at least in the uh, Western Church, called the Sanctus, the Chisagion, You get the holy, holy, holy. But here we have holy God, holy, mighty, and holy, immortal. 
Um, I'm trying to remember the the uh, the Greek archdiocese in England did a different translation, and now it's I'm forgetting Holy God, Holy Strong. They would say instead of Holy Mighty. I've seen that. Uh, it just strikes me as odd. Maybe it's just British English that I, I'm not sophisticated enough to enjoy it. Uh, I'm sure it's right, but I'm so used to Holy Mighty, you're never going to change me on that one. We, of course, it's ascribing uh, holiness to God. Uh, it's specifically naming God. It's describing his might. What does it mean to talk about the might of God? That he's the strongest person in the room? He can bench press always grabbing I mean, maybe this is not the point but I've always read it as like because the the holy God supposed to refer to the father holy mighty the son uh, the son of God is called the power of God in the scriptures so I've always kind of made that connection mm-hmm. and then but, holy immortal I've always made the connection like he's the giver of life of uh-huh. the spirit what's fascinating and I think there's room for this because uh, the history of the church when we're reading these texts when they're reading liturgical texts they start to treat liturgical texts in the same way they do scripture in the sense that they will mine the movements and the things that happen for all sorts of meanings so for example there's a trend uh, uh, thread of interpretation of the church on the small entrance when the gospel comes out right uh, that they interpret that as Christ's first coming into the world where we're preparing also, of course, to then for his, his public ministry, right? Because what's going to happen after we have a small entrance? We're going to read the scripture, and typically we're reading from his ministry. So you have that kind of thread of interpretation. Uh, the interesting thing is that have mercy on us in the Greek is referring, have mercy on us is referring, has a reference back to one. So there's a, even though there might, you could break it down to the triune, but it has a reference back to the unity of God. Oh, I, mean, I, I just remember St. John of Damascus saying that. So. That's a pretty good source. <laughs> but that's what it's about, is that you can have different uh, threads where they'll take this and say, well, this is what it means. And then you read another father and like, well, this is what it means. And you're like, well, th- those maybe kind of disagree with each other, but the church, in the same way as scripture, as long as it's basically within the bounds of Christological, Trinitarian, uh, basic structures of Christian theology, it's okay for there to be uh, some differences on in interpretation. One interesting thing that I learned is that, what, like when when cops sing this, uh, uh-huh. th- this isn't about the Trinity at all. This 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 they they view this entire thing as about the Son, and they'll add the words "who was crucified for us" or like um, "who was born of a virgin for us" or, or something like that. So they they just apply all these words to one person of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Does everyone know who the Copts are? Egyptian Christians. Right? Egyptian Christians. It's just hard that to get that T in there. Copts. Yeah. I always try. Just, I always say just say. Like, it sounds like I want to say the cops are coming. You know, we had cops in seminary. Those the cops are coming. Um, the prayer before the Chesarion, there is actually a prayer, and unfortunately, I thought it would be in this version of the liturgy, but it's not. But it's a prayer that the priest prays, and I'll read it right now. Uh, it's a little long. So just pay extra attention right now as I read it, (laughs) because I can't put it in front of you. O holy God, who does rest in the saints, who art hymned by the seraphim with a thrice holy cry and glorified by the cherubim and worshiped by every heavenly power, who out of nothing has brought all things into being, who has created man after thine own image and likeness and hast adorned him 
with thine every gift, who givest to him who asks wisdom and understanding, who does not reject the sinner, but instead has appointed repentance unto salvation, who has vouchsafed to us thy humble and unworthy servants, even in this hour, to stand before the glory of thy holy altar, and to offer the worship and praise which are due unto thee. Do thou thyself, a master, accept even from the mouths of us sinners the thrice holy hymn, and visit us in thy goodness. Forgive us every transgression, both voluntary and involuntary. Sanctify our souls and bodies, and enable us to serve thee in holiness all the days of our life. Through the intercession of the holy Theotokos and of all the saints, who from the beginning of the world have been well-pleasing to thee. So this is one of those uh, secret prayers, quote-unquote, or the uh, low... Um, you might see Father's mouth or my mouth, and you can't hear us. And it looks like we're mumbling to ourselves because we kind of really are mumbling um, these prayers that are said while the Chisagion. Actually, I usually sing this before the Chisagion because of the time frame. Um, but this is a, one of those prayers of the structure that looks very similar to the Anaphora, and it's even kind of similar to the prayer that I begin in class, which we'll get to in just a little bit. Um, which is basically, uh, and you'll see this kind of structure of the prayers of the Orthodox Church often from even to Theophany when we're blessing the waters, uh, baptism, almost every sacrament has uh, this kind of structure of adoration given to God who dwells uh, here with the saints and is surrounded by the angels, uh, and then how he created things out of nothing but then he's adorned it with wisdom and understanding and saved uh, his creation. And then uh, basically a prayer for forgiveness. Uh, and then a kind of lateral move to and to the intercessions of all the other uh, folks beside the throne, the Theotokos and the saints. Um, you'll see this structure in a lot of our prayers. What is happening during the Chasagion? There's some movement going on. Doing vows. There's the vows. Uh, How many vows are there? Three. That's a good safe guess. Three. Let me see if I have it on here. What else is going on in the Chisagion? I thought it was on here. Nothing is going on? Isn't the deacon, I mean, not the leader like walking with the epistle? Correct. At this time, during towards the end of the Chisagion, so I'll start with the movement that happens in the altar. The priest uh, finishes his three vows, uh, and then basically, he. I usually do another three vows because I'm leaving the place in front of the altar if I'm presiding to move to the high place. What is the high place? Why would it be called the high place? If you look at the ancient church, um, you have behind the altar, and you can see this a lot in old Roman churches, uh, Greek, contemporary Greek churches don't have it as much, but if you go in the Russian churches, they definitely have it. Uh, they basically call it, and this goes again back to the uh, book of Revelation, uh, I'm going to butcher the Greek here, synthronos, which is basically you have the, the um, throne where the bishop stands, and if the bishop was there, we don't really have a throne, mostly because we don't have space. But if we have space, we're going to put a throne there, uh, or at least a, a fancy-looking chair <laughs> uh, that will be the throne, because uh, that's where the bishop stands. Uh, so whenever the altar servers are passing by and you see people bowing that direction, basically in the place where the bishop would be standing, 
and he's usually surrounded uh, by the elders, uh, the priests. And so the priest, as he's moving uh, to the high place, he says these words, uh, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. If he has a deacon, the deacon says, Command Master. Uh, and he says, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. What is this a quote from? Obviously the gospel, but what is this reference? Why would he be saying this? The entry into Jerusalem. Uh, the residents of Jerusalem are shouting praises to Jesus. Yes. He's riding on a donkey. Yes. So you have this kind of idea uh, of the arrival of the king. Uh, then you have, uh, this is where the priest then blesses the high place, uh, saying, Blessed art thou on the throne of the glory of thy kingdom, who sittest upon the cherubim, always now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. So you basically have it a kind of enthronement prayer, uh, because Christ is about to teach through the words of Scripture. So he's enthroned. Uh, then we have, um, at this time, whoever's reading, uh, either if it's a man who's going to read the epistle, he will come into the altar and receive a blessing. If it's a woman, the priest uh, can come to the ambo and give a blessing uh, to do the reading. Uh, and then they go out. And then you have this dialogue here. And then this is kind of a typical dialogue here, right? Let us attend. Uh, if you have multiple people serving priests or deacons, we start divvying all this up. Uh, so let us attend. Peace be unto all uh, and to your spirit. Wisdom. And then the Perkimenon is sung. Perkimenon, what a, a great word. Does anyone know what Perkimenon means? Did anyone know that that, that was called the Perkimenon? I guess the, the uh, reader says the Perkimenon in the such and such tone. Any ideas? If you had asked me a week ago, I wouldn't have had an idea. I wouldn't have a response. <laughs> uh, basically, the Greek means what is set forth or kind of proceeds. So basically, the whole idea of the Perkimenon is that you're singing something that precedes the epistle and the gospel reading. So as you will discover, maybe you've already discovered that a lot of things in the Orthodox Church, we have a Greek word for it, and the Greek word for it really just means a descriptive of what the thing is. Uh, so like what the priest wears, uh, he wears an epitrahelion, which is like the stole in the West. What epitrahelion means thing around the neck. Uh, yeah, he wears, Father Stephen wears, because he's an older priest, uh, he wears an epigonatian, which is this kind of like diamond-shaped thing next to him, which means thing on the knee. So there's a lot of things that we have these, you know, we'll use these big fancy words, but they really just are descriptive things. They're not highfalutin things. Um, the Perkimenon, uh, what is the Perkimenon made up of? recite something like a psalm and then the congregation will chant back to him yes have you ever noticed thematic things from the Perkimenons matching anything like to not have you noticed that every Wednesday night we do the exact same Perkimenon yeah you ever yeah. wondered why no none of you are very no wonder just whatever happens is that's what happens. <laughs> if we did Vespers on Monday night, it would be different. If we did Vespers on Tuesday night, it would be different. If we did Vespers on Wednesday night, it will always be this one. 
On Thursday night, it's different. And there, they are basically just forms of uh, psalms. They used to, the Perkimenon, they would actually do a lot longer. Same with the antiphons, where the antiphons are cut, edited versions of the psalms. The Perkimenon are edited versions of uh, the psalms that they're taken from. Why the psalms? I'm going to start calling on people, just because. Yes. The Old Testament days, they were, it was the songbook, it seemed, for the temple. Yep, it's the songbook for the Orthodox Church as well. The the Psalms are, I'll give you a great quote, actually, from, uh, well, the Psalms, in a, a way, as a songbook, is because they hit the high points of the Old Testament, right? They kind of in, uh, encapsulate the basic uh, structure of the covenant. If the if the if the prophets like Hosea, who I was talking about tonight, are kind of these, I mean, we all know what a prophet is. Basically, these kind of crit- critical voices about how Israel has fallen astray. The Psalms are the um, the music of the people. They encapture the highs, the lows. Uh, breaking the law, uh, sin, uh, death, um, all of these things. From the church's point of view, the Psalms, and this is something that I want us to kind of hit on in general, of how uh, Christians read uh, the Old Testament and how they read especially the Psalms. Um, and then it also affects how we read uh, the New Testament or Scripture in general. Uh, this is a quote from... Well, I'm going to read a little bit from Schmemann's book, uh, specifically about psalmody. Uh, this is the Eucharist. If you want to read a good book on kind of basically a commentary on the divine liturgy, like I began the end of the very beginning of this class, this is a very good book to read. If there's sections of it where you're just like, I have no idea what you're talking about, you can just skip it to the next section and you should be able to be fine. Uh, because Schmemann has his own little hobby horses that may or may not matter to you whatsoever. Um, If all scripture prophesies about Christ, the exceptional significance of the Psalms lies in the fact that in them Christ is revealed as though from within. These are his words, his prayer. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ himself speaks in them. He's quoting Augustine from his writings on the Psalms. Because they are his words, they are also the prayer and words of his body, the church. And this book speak again writes augustine prayer pray and weep only jesus christ and his church these many members united in the bonds of love and peace under one head our savior constitute as you know one man in the better part of the psalms their voice sounds as the voice of one man he implores for all because all are one in unity the experience of the psalms lies at the heart of liturgical usage so part of the reason why we use the Psalms, I mean, Vespers is a perfect example. And in fact, we cut and edit some of the use of psalmody because the very beginning, right after the great litany, where we sing glory to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then a reader picks up now and ever into ages of ages, amen, and then starts reading uh, a section of a cathisma, which is just a way of breaking down the Psalter uh, so that you can, especially if you're in a monastery, read the whole thing every week. Um, if we would be reading a lot more, three times as much. We only choose one-third of the section that's uh, um, appointed to be read. Uh, the Psalms become the voice of Christ. Uh, 
we of course kind of pick this up already in the New Testament and the idea that Christ, uh, that the words even, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? That's a quote from the Psalms that Christ uh, says from the cross. But the way that the church has read the Psalms is that the main voice in very many of the Psalms, not every single one, but the main voice, especially uh, when it is crying out, uh, is the voice of Christ, and it's also our voice. There's this kind of intertwining, right, as we've joined ourselves to Christ. Um, so uh, it's his prayer on our lips, and the Psalms allow us to pray um, the words of God and to shape our hearts around it. And so the Prochemenon sets forth for us uh, the beginning of uh, our moving into then the epistle reading, Have any of y'all, what is your experience of hearing the Prochemenon or the Epistle? Anything about it? Just, that's the Epistle reading. You're probably only used to hearing Paul in the Epistle reading. Do you have any recollection of hearing anyone else besides Paul in the Epistle reading? James. James. Any other? Maybe Peter, like once. Right. It's usually Paul. It's usually Paul. Do you know why it's usually Paul? Because typically you're hearing the, the Divine Liturgy on a Sunday. If you were to do the readings from every day, uh, if you keep up with the, the lectionary, there's basically the Sunday and Saturday gospel uh, lectionary cycle, but also the, the epistles, they are... Um, very ancient settings of them put together, some of them going back 3rd, 4th century, actually. Um, and some, they still go at least 8th or ninth century. But the epistle cycle, uh, we, we read John, we read Jude, we read all of these epistles, it's just that we don't come to church and do the Divine Liturgy every single day. So if you are following in the lectionary, you will eventually read all of these things. Um, but on a Sunday morning, we're typically reading Paul or... Uh, the author to Hebrews, for example, we read Hebrews throughout Lent, um, which uh, there's even debate in the early church as to who exactly wrote Hebrews. A lot of, we basically say Paul because that is the majority of the tradition, but. Is that the daily scripture reading on the OCA? Yeah, that is the, so if you go, the, the, the OCA website has a lot of things where you don't have to spend money to buy things. <laughs> so the OCA website has basically a, uh, a built-in Synoxarian. A Synoxarian is uh, the book that has the Menaeans, the saints, for every day in their lives. Uh, so you can read about the lives of the saints. Um, and then it also has all the readings. Even conveniently, you can just press on the reading and then just read it without having to go flip through a physical book, which you should probably still flip through a physical book. Uh, but nevertheless, it's still good to read scripture even if it's online. Um, so yes, you're keeping up with the cycle, the epistle reading that way. What happens during the epistle reading? There are some actions that are occurring. He'll raise the book over his head like that. He does raise the book over his head. There's something else that occurs during the singing of the Prochemenon and during the beginning of the epistle. 
that the priest or if there's a deacon, it would be the deacon. The sensing. Have you all found it weird that we sense during while? So this is another thing about orthodoxy is that we have no problem with doing multiple things at the same time, right? There's not a linear idea of like if the priest, you know, if there's a reading of scripture, the priest should be standing there silently. Uh, and there's little different ways. Uh, the way that we sense here is a little bit different from the way I was trained um, uh, to, to basically stop sensing during the reading of scripture and then pick it back up at the Alleluia. Uh, but the timing is just can be difficult sometimes. Um, but you have a sensing, and the sensing is the sensing of the altar, the high place, the apse, uh, basically all of the kind of holy things. Uh, and then it moves out, and then you do the iconostasis, and then you come back in to sense the clergy, uh, and then you sense the reader and then the people. Uh, and then you always end with uh, back to uh, the royal doors and then... Christ and his mother, and then go back in and sense the altar one last time. Um, what is the point of sensing? Why do we sense? Signifies your prayers. Ascending. Signifies the prayers. Why do we sense inanimate objects and people? Didn't the Jews do that in the Old Covenant? Like they would burn incense. I mean, like I remember reading Father Daniel Cecil's book, and he pointed out that like the the altar, the incense altar in the temple was right in front of an icon of like cherubim. So Christ sanctified matter. Christ sanctified matter. Yes, it's always in a fully kind of uh, I'm gonna say that fully frescoed church. I would be sensing at almost every turn. Uh, an icon of someone. So sensing uh, is basically, even sensing the altar, basically sensing God because God is enthroned upon the altar. Uh, and sensing the high place or the apse, these are all kind of iconic things that we're sensing. We're all, we're sensing people or persons the entire time. Uh, even when I, sensing the door, you're sensing the, the Theotokos and Archangel Gabriel that are typically, uh, you might have the four evangelists, whoever's on the royal doors when they're open, uh, and then we sense the people. So, the uh, there's always a, a sensing of the kind of throne room basically while something is going on. Um, if you go to the Greek church, they'll just sense the gospel three times and put the censer up. So, uh, we use we we sense a lot more. Um, what happens after the epistle reading? <laughs> Crickets. After the epistle reading is the not that the Alleluia. Um, the Alleluia. Schmemann has a great way of talking about the Alleluia that actually ties back to when I made a little bit of a tangent last week about, um, was that last week? When, I, when did I talk about Terry Rim? Maybe that was two, it was when Mark was sitting here, I, I think. think. It was two weeks that was ago. two weeks ago. Um, where on Manathos they'll chant, and Terry Rim is this idea of the lullaby that the Theotokos sang to Christ when he was a babe 
and it's a kind of word that they use that's kind of a nonsense word, you know, like we say ugu gaga or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but but Alleluia is, uh, we sing it kind of melismatically, and Shmuman has this great way of talking about the Alleluia, and it's something that I have felt uh, very much with the Alleluia, because there seems to be, the Prokimanon always seems to be kind of strong because you're making these statements or these kind of uh, cries to God, then you read the epistle, uh, there's the sensing that's been going on, and then there's this Alleluia that always seems to kind of open up into transcendence in a way. And Schmemann talks about the word itself of Alleluia is a transport, especially because it's sung you know, melismatically, where we say, um, you know, we trill around on each uh, consonant. Uh, the word itself is a transport of joy and praise before the appearance of the Lord a reaction to his coming because after the Alleluia uh, we are going to hear what? The Gospel reading? During that time while the Alleluia is singing this is the prayer that you might recognize that illumine our hearts a master prayer that the priest uh, reads before the altar before the dialogue introducing the gospel. Uh, this is what the altar servers are preparing to then come out to, to be able to be around the gospel. I don't think I'm going to read this prayer because you all have heard it quite a few times. Uh, then you have another dialogue with the, the peace dialogue, uh, <clears throat> encouraging people to pay attention because the church is constantly reminding us to pay attention to stand upright, and then we have the reading of the gospel. Why do we have, or where does it, have you ever heard Father Stephen and I reading the gospel and then realizing that we began in Luke and then we ended in John? I'm wondering what's going on. I would have noticed you do that, like, never in particular. Like, in never, music. never. I, I just why. kind of take it as like a brute fact, like there it is. Yeah, there it is. So the practice of reading two, you can have up to three readings, is dependent upon the solemnity of the feast or what's happening. So for example, this past Sunday, we had the feast for the fathers of the Seventh Ecumenical Council, but the, was it the 17th Sunday of Pentecost, the 18th Sunday of Pentecost? I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Uh, there's a set reading from Luke that's there, and then because of the feast that falls on that Sunday, then there's an extra reading that's attached. So we'll only pronounce uh, the gospel of the first of the Sunday, and then whatever is the next gospel will be read. Um, this is a typical Russian uh, tradition. You know, there's one thing I did want to actually point out about Illuminar Hearts. You have uh, here uh, a kind of uh, epiclesis, and the epiclesis will talk about later uh, with the anaphora, but this is something that you see again in most of the sacraments of the church, uh, definitely um, within the baptism uh, and the consecration. Uh, you have this calling down of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you see it here, the, the, illuminate, the theme of illumination, the opening of the eyes, uh, the trampling down of carnal desires to enter into a spiritual manner of living, uh, for you are the illumination of our souls and bodies. This 
uh, is a calling down of the Holy Spirit. And why would we be calling down the Holy Spirit before the reading of the gospel? So that we can prepare our hearts, right? That we um, hear it and then actually do something about it. Um, the homily typically follows after the gospel reading, but that's not always the case. There'll be churches that you'll go to that they'll do the homily uh, during the um, clergy communion. There'll also be homilies that can be done at the very end of the service, too. Uh, but I prefer, once the gospel is read, it's the time for the homily. What is your experience of hearing scripture read in the assembly of the Divine Liturgy? Is it a different experience than what most of us, I think, are used to, which is privately reading a text in the confines of our homes, maybe even on our flickering screen of our cell phone or something? It's a little different. It's a little different? How is it a little different? Well, I mean, you can kind of see how the Gospels were originally written for a community. You can like, see how the Gospels... Like, to be read in the liturgical context, like, that was their purpose. Right. Like, a lot of people couldn't even read in the time period in which they were written. Correct. You can kind of... I, I especially know we have a practice here of uh, reading the Gospel straight through uh, around Holy Week, all four of them. And... I realized in reading that it's a struggle <laughs> to attend while somebody else, because we take turns for chapters of reading the gospel out loud, the whole thing in all in one sitting. Uh, you realize pretty quickly, or at least one of the things that came to me was like, it's very episodic. And you, it feels when you are in liturgy, you're reading these kind of like little episodes or what we call them pericopes. Uh, and you can tell how scripture was written with these kind of um, little segments that then, uh, as Micah is talking about, um, reflect that scripture was originally read aloud, was read communally, and the main interpretation of that was discerned communally. Uh, you see this even in the pastoral epistles of Paul, or when he's writing letters, he writes a letter, he's not typically, even when he writes to one person, he also, then it gets spread around. It becomes a letter that's kind of addressed to everyone. Uh, and it's kind of an odd reality that we read publicly uh, some other people's mail. Have you ever thought about that? That we read mail that was sent to somebody else as uh, a core part of our faith is in reflecting is Paul writing something to somebody else or John or Peter uh, and then we are receiving this and interpreting this um, to uh, apply it somehow to us. And this, uh, this ecclesial setting of scripture, uh, I think, is one of the kind of defining points about the way uh, the Orthodox Church talks about reading scripture. Um, there's a huge transformation, there's a huge cultural transformation uh, which we can see to this day the evidence of once scripture was no longer a communal event of reading it, uh, but became a, a product of private study. 
you would not have... Chrysostom talks about in the 4th century that a family should save up money and have one gospel in their home, which was basically, if I remember correctly, like if you were doing all right, that was a whole year's worth of wages to get to buy a gospel book. But he put that as a priority for a family to... Because you have to pay somebody to sit down and write the whole thing out, right? Um, uh, now we have... I mean, you've been to Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can have every kind of you know, Bible for whatever kind of, I don't know, field of engineering you've probably even gone into. Uh, there's just a Bible for everything, and devotionals for firemen to policemen to military. It's The consumer aspect of it is fascinating. Uh, but you, get, you have this ability to take Scripture home and to sit down and read it privately, which was not... The historic experience of the church, uh, and I think it uh, is a particular element of the Orthodox faith that we discern Scripture, and we. Uh, this is something that Father John Breck, uh, in his, I didn't bring that book, but uh, he reflects. He talks about it a little bit in this book that I'll talk about in just a second. Um, that Orthodox, we don't just study Scripture. Uh, which is something good and fine and the fathers and the tradition says obviously you need to be swimming in scripture you need to know scripture uh, but there's a difference between the, the study of it and then the celebration of scripture in the assembly where we're reading uh, the Prochemenon we're reading the epistle the gospel the alleluia all of this uh, you encounter Christ um, in the same way that uh, we encounter Christ uh, in a sermon, because the sermons, and in my experience, Orthodox homilies tend to be quite a bit different, besides the fact that they're shorter than the homilies I heard growing up, because I heard like 45 minute to an hour long sermons when I was growing up, sometimes longer. Um, so I won't, I, I will not inflict 45 minute <laughs> sermons on you all. Uh, but that is a very different. Uh, Approach in the even in the preaching of the word in the Orthodox context, because uh, as the fathers actually talk about, um, let me read this quote from Saint Jerome. It says we consume eucharistically the word mysteriously broken. We eat his flesh and drink his blood in the divine Eucharist, but also in the reading of Scripture. Uh, you have in the reading of the Scripture in the church, uh, we've had the epiclesis, even the, the calling down of God to illumine us, to be able to encounter Christ. Uh, and if you're coming from a Protestant background, very often, the Orthodox Church, uh, and the way we even kind of talk about it is like the height, and it is the height of... Um, the divine liturgy is in the Eucharist, but the fathers, and I could go through many other quotes, uh, you even have this, especially, I think, enshrined in um, the Road to Emmaus account. Uh, Christ does not uh, reveal himself until the breaking of the bread, right? But what does he do before that? He expounds the scriptures to them and shows why it was necessary that the Christ would suffer. Right. He expounds scripture to them. The fathers, I mean, this is exactly why we have the structure of the service that we have. We have the liturgy of the word, where we have the reading, the, you have the singing of the antiphons, you have the reading um, of the scriptures, and then you typically have 
uh, an interpretation of the scriptures for the people of God. And then you move right after that into some litanies and the preparation to then begin the liturgy of the faithful. Um, but it's not something to just kind of skip over or that it's not important or that it's, but it's an integral part because we encounter Christ in scripture. Uh, our hearts burn within us, right? As uh, Luke and Cleopas say, and um, the fulfillment or the kind of celebration of the word that has been exposited, uh, read, uh, celebrated in the liturgy, there's a kind of consummation that we have uh, when we actually receive uh, Christ uh, in the form of bread and wine, in when we receive him into us. Um, so it's, it's an <coughs> integral part of the way in which uh, the Orthodox Church understands scripture. There's a few uh, books that I would like to actually recommend uh, because, uh, and this is probably one of my themes, but uh, unfortunately what happens a lot when people become Orthodox is they end up reading a whole lot of stuff uh, and neglect scripture because they maybe have known scripture before uh, and then now they want to read, you know, 15th century uh, treatises on the Holy Spirit. If you're reading 15th century treatises on the Holy Spirit, you probably need to know the Gospel of John backwards and forwards. <laughs> you probably need to know uh, Paul backwards and forwards. So, and beyond that, do you all know what the passage was that was a huge debate in the Arian controversy between Athanasius and Arius? Well, was it John 1? Oh. Because, right, do, so what is the uh, heresy of Arius? Uh, Not you, Micah. I want somebody else to answer this time. Anybody? Yes? We said Jesus was a creative being. They were like Jehovah's Witnesses today. They were like Jehovah's Witnesses today. They just probably didn't ring your doorbell and stuff. Um, they just sang songs, actually. But yes, the Arians were basically denied that Christ was of one essence with the Father. That's the way the Nicene Creed talks about uh, Christ. Um, do you know where all of the, the exegetical battle occurred? It wasn't John 1. John 14 was one. It's not the New Testament. Oh, that's right. Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8. A passage in Proverbs is probably not where you thought that the debate about Arianism would occur. Today, if you were to go to and have debates about Christology, about who Jesus Christ is, where are you going to spend all your time? In the John. New Testament, right? John, John 1. I mean, this is when you debate with Jehovah's Witnesses, typically... If you want to, I, mean, I, mean, I, I don't want to say waste your time, but like talk. Yeah. Some <laughs> Jehovah's folks. Witnesses will actually quote Proverbs eight, though. They will actually go back to Proverbs yeah, eight. They're, they're, like, they're, those not, are sophisticated. Not, not the average Jehovah's Witness was like a standard. <laughs> but like, but like the this like wow. I, I, I've talked to some super smart Jehovah's Witnesses online, and and they'll, uh, they'll sometimes quote Proverbs eight. But yeah. Wow, like father, like son. All right, interesting. So. uh but what's fascinating about the way that a lot of these uh, debates in the early church went is they were not, they were debates as much about the Old Testament and the importance of the Old Testament. Um, so like the book of Hosea, which I was just talking about Hosea just a little bit. Uh, I read a few chapters out of Hosea today once I realized that tomorrow is Hosea because I knew I needed to talk after Vespers tonight. That is not an easy book to interpret. 
Has anyone tried to read Hosea before? Is that an easy book to interpret? Not really. No. Uh, and I read some uh, critic scholarship on it, and everybody was kind of like, because uh, <laughs> it's not easy. The fathers knew that scripture is not easy, and they, in fact, they treated um, scripture being hard to interpret and wrap your brain around as actually God creating it that way so that we, one, can enjoy the wrestling with scripture. You can tell these are some of the fathers who said those were pretty nerdy guys. Uh, uh, but they, you know, they're devoted to the word. Um, they were, if you want to say they were critical scholars, they, uh, you had Origen who would basically gather up all the versions of the scripture, the manuscripts around in order to make sure that the text that he has was the, uh, the best text that he could get his hands on. Um, but they, uh, this hard uh, nature of scripture, the kind of like riddle uh, that wrapped in an enigma, if you would like, uh, they always saw it as a way to pursue Christ, uh, that they would be able to find the meaning of the meaning of the text was Jesus Christ, but that might take a while to uh, extract that meaning from the text. And a lot of them loved that challenge and... Um, Therefore, the whole, all of the scriptures, and when they, you know, when the New Testament refers to scripture, it's not talking about the New Testament, it's talking about the Old Testament. The scriptures, there are scriptures, uh, there's not, uh, it's the Elder Testament, it is uh, the canonical scriptures of Israel that the church uses uh, and finds Christ there. Um, it's not that we just hang out in the New Testament and never read the Old Testament. Um, so the books that I wanted to suggest in the last five minutes here, uh, this is both of these books that I'm about to suggest. Um, well, let me start actually with this one. Uh, I want, had wanted to read some more quotes out of here, but time has gotten away. I could, uh, if folks want, I could easily make this available as a PDF because it's only four or five pages. Uh, this is a book by Paul F. Dokumov called The Ages of the Spiritual Life. And he has a chapter, Lectio Divina, uh, I'm reading the Bible, and it's a great little quote uh, from the fathers or early church um, authors. For example, here's a, a great quote from Chrysostom, because Chrysostom always tells it like it is. Um, I'm not a monk, some of you say, but your mistake is in believing that the reading of the scriptures concerns only monks, because for you it is even more necessary, since you are in the midst of the world, there's something worse than not reading the scriptures, and that is to believe that this reading is useless, a satanic practice. He then also counsels that after church, the husband should repeat what has been read. Thus, one will set a spiritual table as well as a material table. Um, basically, he also uh, talks about reading scripture aloud so that children become accustomed to the daily attentive reading of scripture. Uh, there's a lot of great quotes and exhortations of the fathers uh, in this chapter. If you all want to PDF it, I'll ask at the end after the recording because I don't want to waste time. Uh, this is another book. Uh, if you're interested in the way scripture uh, appears and the structure of it and the kind of themes of scripture uh, for different seasons, Triodian, Pentecostarian, uh, those times, uh, this is scripture readings in the Orthodox worship uh, by George 
I'm going to butcher the last name, Barreau, I think, because he's French. Um, it is a good uh, book. This, uh, some of the works by Father John Breck, this one in Scripture and Tradition, the Bible, and its interpretation of the Orthodox Church, have some great essays. Uh, for example, the first one is the Bible and the Orthodox Church. Uh, if you're wanting to uh, invest a little bit uh, in some of the biblical scholarship that is available in the Orthodox Church, these are some of the books. There's other books, of course, with anything that you're reading or studying. Um, I'm kind of a bibliography guy, so it's easy to ask me, and I can give you at least a rundown of a few books. Are there any questions or anything about the reading of Scripture in the Orthodox Church? The practice of it, the reception of it. Yes, Micah. Yeah, um, th this is kind of related. Um, I heard one person say that, and he's an Orthodox Christian, he's like a very conservative person, uh -huh. um, that basically the Deuterocanon, like the wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, and all that, uh -huh. isn't inspired on the same level as uh, you know, the rest of canonical scripture. And he wasn't saying, he, obviously he didn't have a Protestant attitude toward the Deuterocanon. Right, right. But, like, is that, like, a, an acceptable view in orthodoxy? Or? I honestly, off the top of my head, uh, do not know. I would, so this is what I would say about the Deuterocanonical uh, material. One, if you've never read it, you should read it because it's fascinating stuff. The Wisdom of Solomon and Sirach, especially. Um, especially because of how Christological those books actually are. And one of my favorite genres of, of scripture is wisdom literature. And you're going to get it in spades, obviously, in Wisdom of Solomon and Sirach. The other fascinating thing about those books is how much, for example, the fathers use them and quote them and treat them authoritative. So whether or not, like, I don't know if I even need to consider whether what exactly I would gain or lose by treating them as canonical scripture because we don't read them in um, well actually we do, we do. read the, the wisdom, wisdom of Solomon uh, so this is fine the Orthodox Church never like we have how should I say this the Orthodox Church is an ancient church and it does not have the same anxieties and kind of asphyxiations or um that some of the modern uh, Protestant movements get about this because partly the reason the Reformation, why they wanted to kick the Deuterocanonical books out, does people know why they wanted to kick them out? Because it taught doctrines that they rejected. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pretty ironic. But... Yes. So, uh, for example, a lot of the debate was about the Maccabees. I forget which book of the Maccabees. But Second when, Maccabees, pray for the sacrifice. Pray, pray for uh, saints and... Um, so you get this, this cutting out, but the whole question of the canon in and of itself is a convoluted, uh, complicated thing. Um, they didn't have, you know, Thomas Nelson in Nashville publishing <laughs> the Bible. They had all of these texts floating around, and you can look at early lists of the canon, and you can find uh, the Clementine letters in them. You can find Shepherd of Hermas, I think. You can find other books that we then don't consider to be scripture to this day. And so, 
he's probably right, but at the same time, I don't really know what the upshot of trying to make a huge deal of the difference between canonical and deuterocanonical in that context is. And I guess a related question would be like, it's obviously not the same type of question because beyond all dispute, all the canonical books of the New Testament are totally inspired. But like, it is kind of apparent in the liturgy that the gospels are kind of elevated above the, uh, the epistles. So like, I don't know if it'd be right to say like one is more important than the other, but like, is one supposed to be like... So I think what you get is the sacramental reality. So this is part of the, like, the way that the whole point of the service is uh, not the studying of scripture, right? In the sense of kind of like, making sure that you got the outline of John down and you kind of like, these are the sequences of the signs in John and like this, but that it's Christ coming to speak to you in the gospel, like in the reading of the scripture. And so that sacramental encounter with him is the whole point, which is why I think the gospels uh, are the core and the life, because that is Christ speaking. Uh, in a way that in the Pauline epistles, obviously, <laughs> Christ is not sacramentally speaking in the same way that he does in the Gospels. Um, that does not mean at all that the fathers somehow denigrate the epistles, right? They, right? they live and breathe the epistles. There's a great icon, and I'm going to end with this, uh, of St. John Chrysostom writing his uh, homilies on Paul. And you have Paul, because there was this uh, vision that somebody saw of this, so it became an icon as he was sitting down writing his homilies on Paul. They saw somebody over his shoulder, like, whispering to him, like, this is what I meant when it was Paul, like, telling Chrysostom how to explicate his sermons. So whether or not that actually occurred or not, I, that, I don't really care about that question as much as the fact of the, the fathers speaking and working in the spirit of the apostles uh, is the point. Um, this part of the reason every Wednesday night, which is kind of a great reminder to us, we always sing about the apostles because Thursday is the day dedicated to the apostles in St. Nicholas uh, Amira. Um, does anyone know why it would be St. Nicholas Amira? A guess, a roll of the dice. Does he have the equal to the apostles title? No. No. Think about apostolic succession. Basically, Nicholas is seen as kind of the icon of a bishop. Uh, yes, he's fourth century, but if you look at his Traparion and the way that the tradition, if I'm remembering correctly, the way the tradition venerates him and puts him up in his Traparion and the readings uh, for him, he basically uh, stands uh, in that same way that I was just talking about with Chrysostom of Paul, that he stands uh, as a bishop in kind of like apostolic succession or uh, with apostolic authority. He also gives a nice little slap to Arius at the Council of Nicaea to bring it back to Arius again somehow, but that worked. All right. Thank you all.